Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to The Relentless Truth, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please also go to johnwarrenmedia.com for more information about our work. My guest today is James Rosen. He is a leading investigative reporter and historian. He's the Washington correspondent for the Sinclair Broadcast Group, where he reports daily for a nationwide audience. In a singular career in Washington journalism over the past two decades, including many years at Fox News, Mr. Rosen has covered the White House and State Department beats and reported from Capitol Hill, the Pentagon, and the campaign trail. He has filed stories from all 50 states and some 40 foreign countries. His exclusive stories on national security subjects have earned him awards and accolades, and interestingly, the surveillance of the FBI and the State Department under the Obama administration. He's the first reporter in American history designated a criminal by the federal government of the United States for simply doing his job. His articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, National Review, and the Atlantic, among others. His books include The Strong Man, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate, Cheney One-on-One, Candid Conversations with America's Most Controversial Statesmen, and my personal favorite, A Torch Kept Lit, Great Lives of the 20th Century. This book is a collection of the writings of William F. Buckley Jr. It spent five weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Mr. Rosen was born in Brooklyn and raised on Staten Island. He holds degrees from the Johns Hopkins University and Northwest University's School of Journalism. He's married and has two sons. He's one of the best writers and most capable journalists in the country, and it is my honor to welcome him to the podcast. James, welcome. Gosh, I hope I live up to that introduction. (laughs) Thank you, John. Well, it's a pleasure to have you here, and I practiced the 80-20 rule. I only covered about 20% of your amazing background. James, my audience includes uh, young people in high school, college, and just beyond that, and frankly, a lot of their families. I'm wondering if you would just talk about your life, uh, your adolescence, how you chose journalism, and, and your amazing career. Well, that's, that's very broad, but first, thank you for your kind invitation. It's nice to be with you. I would say that uh, I grew up in New York City uh, in the 1970s, which was a very media-saturated environment and sort of uh, probably watched a little too much television and uh, became attracted to TV news as a career early on. It competed with a few other interests when I was a young person, notably comic books and illustration. I was a pretty talented comic book artist and caricature artist in school, albeit untrained. And by the time I was in adolescence, I started doing caricatures at like weddings and bar mitzvahs and sweet 16s for a hundred bucks an hour, which was great money. I'm not still to this day sure why I gave it up, perhaps because I grew fatigued with hearing the song Celebration, but um, (laughs) it was a great experience. And ultimately, I was persuaded by my parents uh, to choose something
anything besides art as a, as a career for the usual reasons. And I'd always been interested in journalism. And of course, we could assess that art and journalism are not always distinct from each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in any case, and I grew up sort of idolizing Dan Rather and seeing him on television, in, you know, starting in Watergate and beyond. And uh, ultimately, I had a chance years later to work for Dan Rather um, as a researcher. Mm-hmm. Uh, still in touch with him to this day. And a very important figure in, in the history of television news and 20th century media, for sure. Indeed. And in any case... By the time I went to uh, college, which was Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, I majored in political science. I spent some time working in local government before going back to school and getting a master's degree in journalism from the Medill School of Journalism, which is part of Northwestern University. Uh, that was in Evanston and Chicago. And then I sort of climbed the, the ladder of, of local TV news started at uh, NBC affiliate in Rockford, Illinois, market number 137 on the great grid of local TV news markets, at least at that time, mm-hmm. and spent a year there, then worked uh, in New York, uh, including at New York One and News 12 of the Bronx, and where I had to shoot my own stuff, by the way, as a one-man band, prowling the streets of the Bronx and the old oh, Yankee Stadium at times. And then I went to Fox News, uh, Washington Bureau in 1999, covered the White House uh, as one of the junior members of the White House team, 2000 to 2005. So the last year of President Clinton, the first four years of Bush-Cheney. Um, as part of that, I got to ask President Clinton a question in a brief exchange with reporters in the Oval Office. I believe the date was December 27, 1999. This can be researched. Mm-hmm. Uh, but on that basis, I believe I made it into the, officially into the annals of the 20th century presidency. <laughs> and then zealot like, and then I covered the State Department for when Condoleezza Rice was the Secretary of State in less intensive measure over the succeeding years, but still interviewed Secretary of State Hillary Clinton four times overseas. Then traveled with Secretary John Kerry, interviewed him overseas, all the way down to Pompeo most recently for Sinclair in 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, all along the way, I was working away on my private time on my great masterpiece, which I'm ashamed to relate to you and our listeners took me 17 years to finish. Always a part-time thing. Uh, That was the first book that you mentioned about Watergate. No shame in being thorough. (laughs) This is a shame-free zone, I suspect. That's exactly right. Um, And I'm grateful for that. And in any case, I started that book when I was 23 in 1991, and I finished it when I was 40 and published it in 2008. And if anyone had told me it was going to take me that long, I would have said, you know what, I'll just enjoy my Saturday. Forget <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it. But writing about Watergate and the Nixon presidency, particularly intense, labor-intensive work as presidential history goes, because you have 3,700 hours of the Nixon tapes, just for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, each of the two criminal trials of John Mitchell, the former attorney general, who was the subject of the book I wrote, were 10,000 pages long. And it's just, it truly is a life's work. And it was. But I think a revelatory book about Watergate. The second book you mentioned about Dick Cheney was a series of oral history interviews I did with him. We agreed on six hours over three days consecutive in late 2014 at his home. We wound up spending 10 hours together on a recorded conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we all know, Dick Cheney was never one to waste words much. I published about 9,000 words of that as the Playboy interview with Dick Cheney in 2015. And then a book, the one you mentioned called Cheney One-on-One, which collects the full 10 hours of transcripts of my oral history with the former vice president spanning his entire career. The last book reflects 
Uh, my love uh, for William F. Buckley Jr., the late great, who kind of gave me my start in journalism by arranging for me to publish my first article anywhere, which was in National Review mm-hmm. when I was 24, and also arranged a grant for me to get started on the John Mitchell biography and remained somebody of, uh, of encouragement to me along the way. And someone I interviewed at length had some very funny stories about all of that. But that occasion, my, the third book, which was the only bestseller of the three, and as I like to say, John, principally because somebody else wrote it, and uh, <laughs> that was Buckley. And I simply uh, conceived of and curated this collection of eulogies that he had written and delivered for some of the leading figures of the 20th century, that many of whom he knew personally. And that was an art form, the, the eulogy, in which Buckley was always acknowledged to be a master. And it was long understood by people who were familiar with his enormous literary canon that he was that there needed to be a, a collection of, of his eulogies. And I was finally the guy that did that. And it did very well, as you mentioned, spending several weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Bill Buckley used to joke, because all of his books were bestsellers, he said, <laughs> I, I maintain a a small apartment on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> but in any case, um, so that brings us more or less up to speed until uh, my last three years here at Sinclair Broadcast Group, which has been great, and uh, which I've been able to break more stories about different subjects, including my, my famous confrontation with Nancy Pelosi during the, the first impeachment trial of President Trump. I asked her if she hated the president, as he had been maintaining. She, she went back to she went very, back to the mic. You prompted her to. I'm um, pardon the interruption, but she went back to the mic and uh, chatted about that, didn't she? Oh, she was she was very fulsome about it, no question. <laughs> and ended and ended with the exhortation directed to me: "Don't mess with me." Yeah. <laughs> and then I reported five days before the 2020 presidential election that Hunter Biden, the son of then former Vice President Biden, was actively under FBI criminal investigation. And subsequent to the election in December, Hunter Biden confirmed exactly that. And uh, most recently, earlier this year, I published in some exclusive reporting about the origin of COVID-19. And specifically, a top secret report that had been prepared and circulated internally in the federal government in May of 2020 by scientists from the Z Division of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. The Z Division is the intelligence unit of the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, which is itself a subunit of the Department of Energy. And uh, the Z Division concluded in May 2020, my reporting was the first to disclose the results of this study, this classified study, that both the uh, lab leak theory for the origin of COVID-19 and the so-called zoonotic animal origin theory of of COVID-19 were both equally plausible. That was the conclusion of Lawrence Livermore's top scientists in May 2020. And that report, which I broke in May of this year, was picked up by uh, various subsequent outlets and played some small role, I think, in educating the public more about the facts surrounding the origin, the known facts surrounding the origin of COVID-19. And since all that, we've seen President Biden institute a a 90-day review for the U.S. intelligence community uh, to once again examine both of those theories. Mm -hmm. So that takes us pretty much up there the current date. I hope I haven't been too well, long-winded. No, no, no. Thank you for that. And, and you know, one thing I'd like to know, I, I think this audience would like to know is at what point, and you don't get to opt out on this one and say, uh, I haven't reached that point yet, but at what point did you know that you were going to earn your living as a journalist? Certainly by the time I applied to uh, the Medill School of Journalism. Okay. And I was somewhat led down the righteous path in that respect by my childhood friend, Rich Eisen, who now, of course, is well known as the uh, 
longtime main anchor on the NFL network, but who was a friend of mine on Staten Island and we lived together after college and so forth. And uh, He had been a reporter for the local newspaper, the Staten Island Advance, um, known on Staten Island as the Advance. <laughs> <laughs> I say with affection for my, my hometown compadres. And then he went back to get a master's degree in broadcast journalism at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism and uh, then entered local news as a sportscaster and rose through the ranks. And that showed me the way, as it were. And, um, and I followed him to Medill two years later. Interesting. I'd like to shift gears. And I, I, as you were talking, I, I walked away with a couple of other uh, questions to ask. And we, I know we have a limited amount of time. And so I'm going to shift gears to something that I think is very important. And I've heard you speak on this topic several times. And that is this. It's a frustration that my students have. And these are high school and college students who, uh, you know, are well-intended and perhaps uh, some are naive, some are well-informed. Most are, are bright, well-informed students. And they're frustrated by the political polarization in our country. They're troubled by congressional votes down party lines that happen again and again. And I know it's a broad topic, but would you comment on on the why, why are we so divided and so polarized as a country? And, and that, that this might be just an old guy thinking fondly of the good old days when that didn't seem to be the case. It's hard to say that this is the most polarized we've been as a country. I think anyone sitting in their living rooms in August 1968 and watching the live television coverage of the Democratic National Convention where hippies and anti-war uh, protesters you know, were right. clashing with police in Lincoln Park in a horrifying scene, would have thought that we were pretty well polarized at that time. Having covered the White House in the Bush-Cheney era, I remember the what seemed like such acrid politics at that time, the depiction of Dick Cheney as Darth Vader in general yep. uh, being a manifestation of it. But now we look back, due to the advent of social media, on the Bush-Cheney era and I think are tempted to see it as quaint, uh, almost marquee of Queensberry rules compared to uh, what goes on today. I do think that social media has been a real accelerant on uh, just about every negative trend in, in modern society beyond politics alone. Indeed. Um, and um, I do think that where we are obliged to recognize polarization in today's society. And perhaps this is even more troubling than, let's say, the old conventional polarization of, let's say, the Clinton-Gingrich era, when we used to talk about gridlock. Right. Gridlock was the byword back then. Mm -hmm. Perhaps more mm -hmm. troubling is the gridlock that we see intra-party today. And I've written on this for the National Interest magazine. If you check them out on online, you can find the article. There was a symposium of journalists and academics all assessing what the direction should be of the United States with the advent of the Biden administration. This was the January-February issue of the magazine. And I was asked to contribute something. And I wrote about the rise of intra-party gridlock, which is to say the divisions we see within the Democratic and the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And today we're seeing it quite vividly uh, illustrated by the daughter of Dick Cheney, uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, who was purged from the Republican Party leadership right. over her condemnations of former President Trump. What political professionals here in Washington will tell you is, and they've told this to me as a reporter, 
is that uh, the only election that every member of Congress cares about is their next primary. And it didn't used to be so easy for candidates to mount primary challenges against sitting incumbents. But uh, the rise of the internet, of, of desktop publishing, of digital platforms, social media, have uh, and other factors have have all conspired to diminish the power that used to be exercised over these processes by the main two political party organizations, the actual Democratic Party and Republican right. Party, their national committees and so forth, their chairs. Uh, now, very few people need to go to the party to develop messaging and money. Everyone can start their own GoFundMe page. Everyone has a, a digital platform. Everyone in the world almost and except the former president at this point, perhaps. And <laughs> that diminished the power over the primary process that the parties have. And what happens as a result of this ready ability of any board car dealership owner who's prosperous and, and hungers now for nothing less than to be addressed as congressman all day long to mount a primary challenge against a sitting incumbent the ease of that has the following effect, which is to inhibit the incumbent who's always looking over his shoulder at which wealthy constituents kicking up dust or which, which you know, recently returned veteran is kicking up dust in his uh, with a viral video in his in his in his in his district. It inhibits them from forming forging compromise with not only the party across the aisle, but with their own leadership. Mm. And many analysts will tell you that the the rewards uh, incentive structures in modern American politics right now are such that may more handsomely reward disagreement with your own party leadership than with agreement. In any case, the Freedom Caucus was a good example of this, the House Freedom Caucus, where mm -hmm. um, I remember the days when Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows were giving fits to Kevin McCarthy. And you have the squad over in the Democratic Party, a rising freshman and sophomore, fairly backbencher members of Congress, who nonetheless are savvy at social media and have their own dedicated followings and who are able to give fits to Nancy Pelosi. And the way she was ultimately pushed into endorsing the first impeachment trial of President Trump, which she had long insisted would, would only happen if it really were a bipartisan exercise, uh, showed it, to some extent the power of, of lawmakers in the Democratic Party who, compared to Nancy Pelosi's vaunted ex decades of experience, had been on the Hill for relatively speaking five minutes but who were very active on social media. So when we talk about polarization today, I would urge our listeners to take a look at the polarization within the parties, which is really severely inhibiting any cooperation between the parties. You know, you make, you make such a good point, and I hadn't really thought about it in that context. Obviously, polarization within the parties was obvious during the, the Trump presidency, and you, you mentioned uh, Dick Cheney. In fact, I have an old friend, uh, Bill McCullum, who I had uh, speak at, uh, to my classes a few years ago, and he walked from Florida. He, yep, he walked through the kind of the old school environment that you talked about, where party loyalty was at a at a premium. And he actually explained, and I never heard this, and I know you you're in D.C. and you've worked there for years, and so this is old news to you. But he talked about the the buildings down the street from the Capitol that both Republicans and Democrats use for fundraising purposes. And there's this pressure on, particularly on the uh, the freshmen as they show up for their term of Congress and for everyone to to go and do the right thing for the party. 
But this splintering that you're talking about, this division that you're talk, you were just responding to, and social media, and and the the other thing I I thought of as you were talking is just even media outlets, traditional, semi-traditional cable media outlets, are much more competitive today. Twenty-four hour news and and all the rest that I think we've we've just uh, we've created an environment where this splintering within the parties is going to be with us for a long time. And I, I think the social media kind of a, allows a, a great uh, uh, venue for this polarization. Now, as a reporter, John, I'm never supposed to venture into the, uh, the dangerous waters of policy prescription. <laughs> but to the extent that the symposium for which I was writing in the National Interest Magazine was uh, devoted to the, the path America should take, I felt free enough to advance one idea which is utterly ideologically neutral in conception and application, which would be if I were able to wave my hand like a magic wand uh, to either enact or repeal any law I could, the one measure I would enact would be a constitutional amendment that would adjust the length of the term served by members of the House of Representatives from two years, which is which it is, yep. to four years. Mm. because this would do no violence to the notion of the senators who are still elected for six years as the upper chamber. But where two years might have seemed like a long time to the founders, two years goes by pretty quickly today, and it is the reason why, especially with the advent of information technology, those members are forced, as you just described, to visit certain dungeons uh, where they are made to literally (laughs) dial for cash. Allowing House members to serve for four years instead of two would get them off that treadmill for at least one cycle every other cycle and maybe allow them a little more space to think and to govern and with it, of course, compromise. Oh, indeed. I'm glad my clumsy uh, uh, rambling there prompted you to actually uh, uh, go there. I totally agree. I would like the... uh, the term to be expanded for Congress. And because the Senate is the most austere uh, governing body, I guess, in the world, they would still kind of have the upper hand, I guess, is the not a good way to say it. But the a six-year term, would you, if you're comfortable going there, would, would you favor term limits or no? I personally, again, I can, I can speak to this issue because in doing so, I will be ideologically neutral. <laughs> but I personally don't favor term limits. Because I think that, in general principle, we want as much liberty to reside with the people as as can prudently be afforded them. And to remove from the hands of the people their ability to vote for a given incumbent, let's say for a third time, is, I think, the kind of liberty we don't want to be removing from the hands of the voters. And, And moreover... The idea that uh, we would ensure that people who've won a second term are understood from the moment they are sworn in for that second term to be ticking down on the clock on their power, Mm -hmm. I think inhibits their effectiveness. I agree. It makes them all lame ducks. So, you know, if the American people wanted to uh, put Barack Obama in for a third term, they should have had that opportunity. Ditto for George Bush and, and Dick Cheney. And I don't, um, I don't think the that, framers, that, I don't think they had this notion of term limits in mind at all. Well, George Washington, who had an option to run for a third term, did not. Right. And I think that, as, so, as with so much of what Washington bequeathed the country 
mm. both you know as citizen, as general, and then as as our first president, helped form the template for how presidents would behave thereafter. Mm. And it was only after FDR won a fourth term and was serving it and died that an amendment to the Constitution was ratified to to limit presidents to two consecutive terms. That's right. And again, the thinking was that it would such an amendment would serve as a guardian for the people against the institution of dictatorship of some kind. But again, I say leave the decision-making with the people where possible. Yep. And if they want to elect someone a third time, that should be their prerogative. I want to take a few minutes to get you to talk about William F. Buckley Jr. One of my favorite things to do growing up was to sit in front of the television and watch Firing Line. And I've, I've been a fan of, uh, years ago at least, National Review as well. You know a lot about the man, and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if you, you know, I, I jotted down just some of my favorites uh, in, in, in your book, Reagan, Elvis, John Lennon, Milt Friedman, it goes on and on. Can you just talk about him, his, his career, who, who he was as a, as a, as a journalist, and, and perhaps uh, maybe a, a couple of your favorite characters that are addressed in the book? Well, William F. Buckley Jr. was the founder of the modern conservative movement in America, although he himself only ran for office once and mostly as a lark in 1965 when he was just starting to be very famous. And he ran for the mayor of New York City on a newly formed conservative label. And through his witty TV appearances, his debating style, and just his very compelling and winning personality, he, he had secured... 13% 13% of the vote, that he had no real interest in serving as mayor of New York City was evidenced, nonetheless, by his exchange with a reporter at the news conference where he announced his candidacy and was asked what he would do if he won, and he replied with that strangely upper-crust Victorian accent of his <laughs> demand a recount. Um, <laughs> uh, his, now, he contributed to that intra-party tension because uh, his campaign was chiefly undertaken as a as a a means of antagonism toward uh, the rhino of his day, the uh, liberal Republican mayor of the time, John V. Lindsay. But Buckley founded the magazine National Review, which remains the leading conservative journal of opinion in the United States today. Indeed, He had a show called Firing Line that you mentioned, which ran on Sunday mornings and consisted of a a half hour or an hour of uh, uninterrupted debate between Buckley and one is tempted to say his victims, but more neutrally will say his guests. <laughs> and on the show, he debated all sorts of people from Muhammad Ali to Allen Ginsberg, to <laughs> economists, politicians. He had Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan on the show. It was really high caliber television, and he hosted it for 33 years, yep. uh, which made him the longest running TV host, single TV host for, for, for a program, at least until that time as, as he retired uh, in the 1990s. Uh, Buckley was also a spy novelist, a former spy, a spy novelist, an avid sailor who sailed the Atlantic and the Pacific multiple times and wrote best-selling books about it each time, Uh, a newspaper columnist whose column ran three times a week from 1962 until he died in 2008, all of which were turned into best-selling yearly anthologies of the columns. He played the harpsichord. I mean, he was just a singular individual, but he was very handsome and witty, and he had a great debating style. And he said some really wonderful things that helped Americans to think anew about their society and the way they govern themselves. I remember a famous 
Buckley moment from the 60s when he said, I would sooner be governed by the first 400 names in the Boston telephone directory than by the faculty of Harvard University. <laughs> and you have to think about that. Which set of 400 people would you first elect to run your life and to run the government? I, I, might, have quoted, um, I might have quoted him in class with that particular quote on more than one occasion. That, that one is brilliant. Now, I interviewed Mr. Buckley for an hour on the occasion of his 75th birthday when I was working at Fox News, and we, we had three cameras set up in his his townhouse mansion on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, uh, which when you walked into it was like stepping into the year 1968 with the maroon painted walls and the, the oil painting of him and Mrs. Buckley from their youth and, you know, the white bearskin rug with the mouth open and the little trays of cigarettes wherever you sat. It was really extraordinary. And I remember... He was so witty and charming and had hobnobbed with everybody and had had this very glamorous seeming life and yet this productive. He was also a, a devout Catholic and, and wrote extensively on matters of faith mm-hmm. and, and it was just one of the, the, the leading sort of cultural figures of his time in a way. It dawned on me to ask him, Mr. Buckley, when was the last time that you felt insecure about something? Anything under the sun, uh, um, financially insecure, emotionally insecure, in a bad neighborhood after dark, anything at all. And he sat back and before answering me, and he said, well, there have been some rather uh, anxious moments at sea. I remember one particularly horrific squall that came through, and I wasn't entirely sure we weren't going to drown. <laughs> well, this was October 2000, uh, the month before he turned 75 when we were doing the interview. And I said to him, and, and when was this, sir? And he just looks at me and he says, 1958. <laughs> so, so let's recap, John. That, that imitation is, that man, imitation is so good. You felt a, a twinge of insecurity about anything at all under the sun, anything. And you have to dimly harken back 42 years. That is a life well lived. And in fact, the, the very popular novelist of the era, Kurt Vonnegut, <laughs> famously said uh, that whenever he saw William F. Buckley on the street in New York and they were socially friendly, he thought to himself, there stands a winner in the decathlon of life. Oh, well, you know, uh, for me, it was yesterday. That's how far back I have to go. But then again, I'm not intellectually superior to just about everyone else on earth like, like he was. No. Well, he, he led by the force of his wit and intellect, but also his example. Indeed. Indeed. Well, you know, uh, James, I can't thank you enough for, for being here. I feel like we just scratched the surface. I'd love to have you back someday soon. It has just been an honor. These perspectives are so helpful. I know that uh, this audience will, uh, will benefit from these uh, thoughtful, thoughtful insights. Well, you're very kind to extend the invitation, John. Thanks for having me on. Well, and thank you for your, your generosity in, in every respect. Folks, I hope you'll, you'll read uh, James Rosen's books and follow his uh, good work. This investment of your time, as you can tell from his thoughtful perspectives, not to mention his uh, uh, sense of humor. And we, we didn't get to some imitations that I've heard that you do, that you, you do rather well. But the Buckley one is, is uh, oh, it just brings back memories. It's, it's just priceless. So thank you again for now, John, being here. Despite the, thank you. And despite the negatives of, of social media that we articulated in our discussion, I am also obligated, to, since you've asked folks to check out my work and been kind enough to do that, to tell them they can just find me on Twitter at James Rosen TV. Oh, oh, thank you for that. And yes, and please do. And in fact, James, uh, I don't usually tell personal stories here, but 
I actually contacted you years ago when my daughter was, I think, maybe in the first year of college, and you were the guy uh, who, who uh, the only guy I wrote, frankly, and said, hey, look at these essays. I'm so proud of her. And you wrote back, and, and, and you were so kind and encouraging, and, and uh, she is a, a PhD student today working away on a political science degree, and just grateful for the fact that, again, uh, a few weeks ago when I contacted you, you, uh, you so graciously uh, agreed to come on. And these, these, again, these insights for adults and particularly for my uh, students over the years will be so valuable. So thank you well, again. I, I take full credit for the advancement of your daughter professionally. <laughs> um, <but> <laughs> anything good she's accomplished was my doing with that, yeah. that exchange. No, you're, you were very kind. I really appreciate this this opportunity, oh, and um, and I, I hope I hope folks find it useful. Well, thank you so much, folks. If you would uh, like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth, and for more information, again, go to the website johnwarrenmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.